All right, get your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if uh, you bring a Bible and you go, I never know where to look. It's the first book in the Bible. And uh, just turn there, go to chapter 2. And I want to look this morning at God's blueprint and his design for a successful marriage. And I want you to know, as as you're turning in your Bibles, that marriage is God's design. He is the one that created it. And here's what he has to say about it. All right. Genesis 2, 24. Here's what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I know some of you are sitting here thinking, where have I heard that before? Probably when you got married. That was probably read when you got married. It's God's blueprint designed for marriage. Jesus was being questioned by some Pharisees about the issue of divorce and marriage. And uh, in, in Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24 as God's design for marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, foundational passage uh, of concerning marriage. It's where we've kind of spent time over the last couple of weeks talking about the role of man and women in marriage. The apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24. Genesis 2 and 24, 25 lay out the found, four foundational principles that God has given us for a successful marriage. Now, again... Marriage is his design. And so he gets to tell us how it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to work. All right. Now, here's where some of you are this morning. Some of you, you you have a good marriage and you've decided I'm good with a good marriage. It'll probably never get any better, but it's okay. That's not God. God wants you to have a better marriage. Some of you are, you have a great marriage and you're just, I mean, listen, it can get better. All right. Some of you are struggling this morning. You are on the ropes. You are hurting. There is hope for you, all right? Don't ever, ever settle into the idea that this is as good as it's going to get because God has a plan. He wants it to get better, all right? That's his will. I want, he's designed it. He said, this is how it's supposed to be. I've got a plan that, to help you to take it to next levels. Now, I'm going to give you four things. I want you to write them down this morning. If you, if you don't normally take notes, this is the morning to do it. If you're single, I want you to take notes Sometimes these last few weeks, I see single people walk into their cars. Don't do that. I will hunt you down. I will leave the stage. I'm going to hunt you down. No, I'm just kidding. Students, take notes. All right. First word, and we're going to break down Genesis 2, 24, 25. Number one is the word priority. Genesis 2, 24 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, before you got married and only second to your relationship with the Lord, your number one relational priority was your parents. When the word says to leave your father and mother, it doesn't mean to stop honoring them, to stop respecting them. It just simply means you let go of your parents as the number one relational priority of your life. And you reprioritize your world so that your marriage becomes the priority over not just your parents, but everything else in your world except for God. Now, last week, Amy and I spoke about how to bring the the, the roles that men and women play in marriage together. And we said that the focus has, has to be on Jesus. Our mutual submission is towards Jesus. If he's not the center, if he's not the focus, none of this works. So I want to lay that foundation down before we go any further that you understand when I talk about priorities. Jesus has to be at the center. So God has set up marriage for our spouse to be the number one priority of our lives. And when we are, and when it's not, there's going to be a legitimate jealousy that's going to set into our marriage. Now, There's a dangerous, destructive type of jealousy, but there's also a good type of jealousy. You say, what are you talking about? 
Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, the Lord says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, God has many names in the Bible, and one of these names is Jealous with a capital J. God is a jealous God. And he tells the nation of Israel, he says, I created you for me first. Before your jobs, before your hobbies, before any other relationships, before your interests, I love you and I've created you for me. And when I'm not the priority of your life, it means that an idol has taken my place. Things have gotten out of alignment. Priorities have gotten out of whack. And so God, godly jealousy, is a protective emotion to protect the priorities in our marriage. It's a protective thing. Now, he's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. All right. He's jealous for you. And when we get married, a covenant is made between with God, between our spouse and and with God. And we become one flesh. Literally, we become one person in God's eyes by God's design. And we walk away from that altar saying that this man, this woman, plus God, under God. But but this this woman now is now or this man is now my number one priority. However, When something comes into a marriage that messes up that picture in a negative way, jealousy begins to set in. When a man puts his job, when he puts another relationship, when he puts his children, his children's hobbies, when he puts anything before his wife, jealousy is going to set in. Why? Because things are out of order. Something, something has, has, has brought, been brought in that is now before his wife. Wives are the same way. If another relationship, a hobby, an interest, your kids, if they are put before your husband, jealousy is going to set in because things are out of alignment in the marriage. It's a legitimate jealousy that wells up inside of us for the sake of protecting our marriage. Now, how do you show what your priorities are? How do you show what your priorities are? Well, first of all, sacrifice. Sacrifices have to be made. Sacrifice is the reality of priority. Number two, time. Where and how do you invest your time? Now, we know time's a limited commodity. There's only so much of it. You can't create any more. And oftentimes, we fill our time with all sorts of things. We fill our time with our kids' schedule, with late, night, late, night at the, late nights at the office, activity, all kinds of things. And our priorities get out of, out, out of whack. Now, early uh, on in, in, when I was in ministry and, and Amy and I had just gotten married, I was probably what you call the classic workaholic. All right? I was, I mean, I, I was out almost every night with students. I had activities going on all the, t- all the time. When Amy and I got married, she was a full-time school teacher. And so when, when we got married, I thought, I'm just going to bring her into my world. I mean, she's just going to roll with me. And I remember one day we walked in from an activity and she was so wiped out, she literally collapsed, just exhausted, went to the ground. And I picked her up and I, and I, and I put her on the couch and, and I don't remember if it was at this moment or some other stupid moment I had, but I, I looked at her and I said these words, I said, you know, Amy, I, I just don't think you love students as much as I do. <laughs> now, some of you are going, man, you're an idiot. And I, I am. And I was, and, but I'm going to tell you, so, so we, we worked hard to try to get my, some priorities in order, but then we moved to Georgia and we started the church together. And she and I are just, we're all about it. I mean, for, we said, we're going to take one for the team. We're going to work until we, so, I mean, we were plugging at 80, 90. I mean, it was crazy. And our kids were being impacted negatively by it. And so in, 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 in the summer, in the spring of 2000, I, I had, I set up an appointment with a pastor on the other side of town. You probably heard of him, Andy Stanley. And, and I got one-on-one with him and I just, I had one question for him. And I said, I said, listen, 
I said, this church is about a thousand people now. I said, I am struggling. I said, how do I continue to pastor this growing church and, and keep my marriage and my kids intact? And he just looked at me and he goes, you got to choose to cheat. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you're, he goes, you're cheating your marriage. You're cheating your kids. You're cheating it for the sake of the ministry. And I said, well, yeah, that's what, that's what I've been trained to do. He said, it's wrong. And then he said this to me. He said, God never promises to make up for misguided priorities. Now you take that into, you, you put that into your world because it's the same thing. God never promises to make up for misguided priorities. And so I, he, he gave me a tape of this message he had done on this, on this topic. And I'm crying, listening to it on the way home. I took this tape to an elders retreat. All right, it's back when we did cassette tapes. And I played it for our elders. And I mean, these guys are crying. And I'm going, man, they really feel sorry for me. And they're like, no, their priorities were messed up too. And so we made a bunch of decisions to realign, to realign the world of not only Western, but some of them. So that we, our spouses here at this church, our kid, they would be the priority over ministry. You have to give time consistent to priorities. Number three is energy. What gets your best energy? Where are you putting your best focus? Or is your spouse getting your leftovers? Number four, attitude. Are you communicating, I want to be with you? When I'm at dinner with you, I'm, I'm looking at you in the eye, I'm listening. I'm not Twittering, I'm not on my phone. No, I'm, I'm, I'm into what you're saying. I'm into to, to what you're telling me. All right? Your attitude is saying, or whatever, your eyes, whatever, I want to be with you. Now, I want to talk about, just, just real quick, stages of marriage, all right? And here's a study that, that, that I heard about a couple of weeks ago that, that some people did. They said that the happiest times of your marriage are when you first get married. And I know some of you, you know, your first year was really rough, but, but hopefully it got better. But the happiest times of your marriage are the, are the first few years. When you have children, guess what happens? The level of your happiness starts to go down. All right? Because all of a sudden, now the priorities have shifted. Guess when the worst, lowest point of satisfaction happens in your marriage? When your kids hit middle school and high school. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm. because you become a taxi, their schedules take over. All of a sudden you're dealing with all this emotional stuff. I mean, and then once they leave, okay, whenever that happens, 18, 19, 25, 38, whenever that happens, all right, if you're still together, okay, and you haven't messed it up too much, all right, and it's just the two of you again, guess what happens? The satisfaction level goes up, up but it never it never rises as high as it was in the beginning. You say, why? Because when you first got married, for those first few years, you were focused on each other. But here's what happens. Here's what happens in, in most marriages. As, as, as time goes by, the husband typically, honeymoon's over, he takes his attention and energy and he turns it towards his job. And, and the wives, if you have children, they take their attention and their energy and they throw it towards their children. And while this is happening, what happens? Couples begin to drift apart. Now, I want to talk about those two issues. Let me talk to you guys specifically about work. Work is a means to financing your family life. It's a, it's a means to supply, supplying for your needs and investing in God's kingdom. And guys, it was never designed as a means for you to find all your significance. All right? On your deathbed, you're not going to be talking about your job. It's not going to matter to you what you did. What's going to matter to you is who's around you and who loves you. All right? Children. Let me talk about children. And this applies to everybody, both men and women. There's a couple of things here. Your kids are important, but they're not as important as your marriage. They are a temporary assignment. And your marriage, but your marriage is for keeps. 
And some of you have put your kids and their schedule and their needs and desires and their sports and this and that in front of your marriage. And I'm going to tell you what, you're going to pay a price for that. All right? But I want little Johnny to play for the Georgia Bulldogs. Guess what? He's not going to. All right? Unless little Johnny's, a, a, you know, really special and there's only a few of those walking around. Why is everybody named little Johnny when a pastor, you know, it's crazy. Think about this. How are your children going to succeed in marriage if you don't give them a model to follow? And over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about marriage. Okay, we're going to be talking about raising kids, all right? There's a pastor in Texas. He and his wife have a, have a great marriage ministry, Jimmy Evans. He talks about disciplines to create healthy priorities in your marriage. And he says, listen, it's not about what you do. It's about what you can keep doing. It's that once, it, it, it's, it's that once every few year weekend getaway. He says, it's great. He says, but what about a weekly date? day or a date night. He says, what, what, what are you doing every day, every week, every month to cultivate intimacy and closeness, to communicate our priorities? When I was in college, I would, um, I would call home this back in the eighties. And so we didn't have cell phones, but so we had to, we had to use, um, you know, the pay phone or call collect or whatever. And I remember calling home and, and there would be two or three day period from time to time where I could not reach my parents, I could not reach them. And it, I mean, I'm, I'm in Virginia, they're in Michigan. And finally my dad would call me and I'm like, dad, where were you? He goes, none of your business. I'm like, what do you mean it's none of my business? You were gone for like two days, three days. I said, dad, I was worried. I didn't know where you guys went. I thought something bad had happened. He said, well, son, all right, if you, if you need to know, we were, we were at the Holiday Inn. <laughs> dad, it's five miles from your house. He goes, I know. I'm like, I know. I said, we, we took Jonathan, my... Uh, younger brother. He said, we put him with someone else and we spent two or three days at the Holiday Inn. I'm like, you are the man. (laughs) He was working on the marriage, making it a priority. Number two, protection. Protection. Genesis 2.24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The word is cleave. Hold fast. Cleave means to protect something. What am I protecting? I'm protecting a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant made between a man, a woman, and God for a lifetime. A covenant, as defined by Scripture, is a solemn, binding relationship which is meant to last a lifetime. In the Old Testament days, a covenant, it was solemn and it was binding. When two people entered into a covenant with one another, a goat or a lamb would be, would be slain and, and its carcass would be cut in half. And when the, with the two halves separated, lying on the ground, two people would walk through that picture. And, and it was a picture of, of forming a covenant. All right? It would solemnize a promise by walking through those two halves, saying, may God do, so, do this to me. Cut me in half if I ever break this covenant with you and God. Now, I want you to think about your wedding moment for, for those of you that are married. If you were a bride, you probably came down the aisle in a, in a beautiful white dress. And, and I don't know if they still do this, but most of the time, like a beautiful white runner was pulled down the middle aisle and you walked through that thing. Imagine if you were a Jewish Old Testament bride. You and your groom walked through a cut up carcass with blood all over the ground. That makes for a beautiful wedding picture to hang on the wall, by the way. Now... I'm, going to dive, I'm not going to dive into the symbolism of all of what I just said, but it represented the seriousness of the covenant that was being made between a husband and wife. And we see this very first marriage covenant created in the Garden of Eden. Literally, you could paraphrase Genesis 2, 24 and 25 to read like this. 
For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall stick like glue. He shall stick like glue to his wife, meaning that nothing but death could separate them. And they shall become one flesh as they enter into a covenant relationship. As I've said over the last uh, several weeks, we're in a spiritual battle. And Satan would love to destroy your marriage. He would love to distract your marriage. He wants to create destruction. So here's what we're called to do. We are called to defend our marriage covenant and we're called to defend our covenant partner. Now, how do we do that? All right, now here's the deal. You have to make some decisions to protect your marriage. Now, I want to I address a particular area that I've spoken about before. And quite honestly, anytime I speak about this, I catch flack over it. I get criticized every time I talk about this. And so you're like, well, why are you going to do that? Well, because I don't really care right now. There are boundaries that I have set in my life, okay, that Amy and I have between each other, but also I've set as a pastor and as a man to protect my marriage, all right, and and the covenant that I've made with her. And every time I roll these things out and tell you about them, I will have somebody, usually it's a woman, go to one of my staff members and say, oh, he just thinks he's all that. Listen, I want you to hear me clearly. I do not think that I am all that. Just the opposite. I am a person just like anyone else that could fall prey to temptation. All right, so I have, I, have, I have some boundaries, okay? And Amy and I, we, we've set up boundaries when it, when it comes to protecting our marriage, and I have some boundaries as a pastor that I've chosen, and, and a couple of the boundaries the elders have chosen for me, the elders of Westridge, all right? And, and first of all, we, number one, we don't speak negatively about each other to other people. We just don't do that, all right? I'm not, you're never going to hear me talk bad about her to anyone. It's not going to be on Facebook or any, it's not going to happen, all right? Number two, we guard ourselves when it comes... Now, there are many others of these. I'm just going to give you a couple. We, we, we guard ourselves when it comes to the issue of social networking. Okay? And there, there are a lot of people out there who are in bad marriages right now, who are on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, who are looking for an escape. A few years ago, um, in all the divorce cases in the United Kingdom, Facebook was mentioned one out of five, one out of five in all the divorce papers. All right? You've got to guard yourself when it comes to that. Because people are looking. They remember you back when you were 18 or 19. Listen, I'm, some of you know I'm back on Facebook, all right? But, and I did it as a public figure. And I hate, I, I hate even the, the whole connotation of that. I'm, but it's the only way I could do it, all right? To guard myself, all right? Why, why are you back on it? Well, I want to communicate some things to y'all, all right, if you want to hear them, all right? But you've got to protect that. Here's another thing. I don't ride in a car alone or dine alone with a woman outside my family. Now, I've got some real interesting stories, and if I had more time, I'd tell you about them. But, you know, just little awkward moments you find yourself in. So here's the deal. If you ever see me in a restaurant with with someone other than Amy, if you see me in a car alone with someone other than Amy, I'm related to them. Just know that. Okay? Another thing. I don't meet with female staff members behind closed doors. All right. If, if I do it, the door's wide open. All right. Now, here's another thing. And, and I catch a lot of flack over this. I don't counsel women. Okay. I don't meet with women, period. All right. Now, our elders have set that. All right. They've set that boundary. All right. I don't. And, and, and if I ever do meet with a woman, okay, if it ever happens, then my assistant or my wife is present. You say, what? Listen, I have nearly 24 years of doing what I do. And I could tell you some crazy stories, all right? Now, I'm not going to do it just to entertain you. But I have cra- crazy stories that have just said, I-, I can't do this. 
I can't counsel women, all right? Amy and I, we pour into our marriage. We pour into it. We date every week. We schedule time together away from our kids every year. They complain about it. We don't care, all right? It's healthy for them to be away from us. It's teaching them to be, you know, to be a little independent, all right? There's a level of openness that she and I have between each other that we don't have with anyone else ever, all right? We make intimacy a priority. She talked about that last week, all right? Now, listen, I'm I'm in a unique situation, all right? If, If I cheat on my wife or if I walk away from my marriage, I lose my place in ministry, and that scares me to death. But that's not really the biggest issue. The issue is, and this is your issue, You break a covenant. I break a covenant that I've made with God where I have said, I will stay to this, I will stay with this woman until one of us dies. It's a marriage covenant. And I have been called to protect the covenant. Number three, possession. Genesis 2.24, it says, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's a sexual connotation here. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But here's what one flesh means. It means oneness. The only way... Okay, this is Jimmy Evans saying this. The only one that some, the only way that something can be one is for there to be a surrender of everything we have into the common unit of the marriage. The only way that something can be one is for there to be a surrender of everything we have into the common unit of the marriage. In other words, it's no longer mine. Everything I have now belongs to you. And I'll tell you a funny story. My, when, when, in 1991, I bought my first house. And I was single when I bought it. I was dating Amy, and she actually helped me pick it out. But um, I, was, I was single, and uh, I had actually rented out a couple rooms in my house. And Troy Page down here was one of, my, he, he was one of my roommates. And we had another roommate, and he didn't pay his bills, so we kicked him out. But Troy and I decorated this house. It was bad. We, we, it was really bad. And, and this whole period of time, several, many months, Amy, she'd come and hang out at my house, you know, and but she never said a word about anything, about the decorating, none of it, all right? We got married, all right? We come back from our honeymoon. Troy had moved out, fortunately. And um, she comes in and she, takes, and she starts taking everything off the wall. She redecorates the whole house. And I'm going, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm redecorating this house. I'm like, well, why are you taking that down? I like that. She goes, I don't like it. She, and she goes, Brian, it doesn't even fit here. This is a, this is a huge 20-foot wall, and you've got a little thing this big right in the middle of it. It's, it's, I said, well, we've been dating all of these months, and you have not said one thing about this house. She goes, it wasn't my house. And so now she goes, now it's my house. And I went, all right. And from that moment on, it's been, she decorates. Anything that I'm not willing to give up for the sake of my marriage has potential to destroy my marriage. Anything that you are not willing to give up for the sake of your marriage has the potential to destroy it. Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, our marriage as a couple should be a mere image of Christ in the church. And Paul calls it a mystery. And some of you go, I do too. My goodness. What did Christ give up for the church? Everything. Everything. Listen, anything that we will not give up for our marriage will either damage or destroy the marriage. The word my, the word mine, has great potential to destroy a marriage. Now, let me tell you where this gets a little tricky. 
blended families. When you have a blended family, the Brady Bunch has come together, you have got, as a couple, you've got to be together on decisions. When it comes to rules for your house, how you're going to raise kids, and who, you've got to be together because your kids are naturally designed to tear you, to tear you, I mean, not really, but I mean, it, they, they know how to work angles. Possession communicates value. It counters or it creates jealousy. Possession creates intimacy or it can destroy it. Now, let's talk about sex for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. I want you to hear this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the, the wife to her husband. That means that the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what's being said here? What's being said here is is that sex is a gift that God has given to a man and a wife in the context of a marriage relationship. And it not only has relational benefits, but it has spiritual benefits as well. Sex is a picture of, of two people becoming one flesh. It's the oneness mentioned in Genesis 2. When you have sex with your spouse, you are giving yourself to them. And in God's eyes, you are becoming one flesh. Now, singles and students, I want, I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you see the problem here that we've just laid out? The problem with anything sexual outside of marriage. Anything. It violates God's plan for you. You are giving something sacred to someone else that doesn't belong to them. You're creating a oneness that has been reserved for someone else in the context of a marriage covenant. However, when you get married, guess what? Your body belongs to your spouse. The Bible says... Do not, to deprive your spouse of sex outside of a mutual agreement would be wrong. That's a touchy subject because some people use sex as a weapon against their spouse. That's wrong. Some people use it as part of a reward system. You've got a little bonus system going on in your house. That's called manipulation. All right, and it's wrong. We look at our bodies the same way as we do material possession. This is mine, all right? It's not all right. It first belongs. It first belongs to your spouse. All right. You give authority. You give possession over it to your spouse. Now there are, there are people who are, who are abusive or messed up sexually, and they hear this and they feel that now they've got a license to be sexual abusive to their spouse. That is sinful, and it's not what's being said here. Paul communicates that there there needs to be dialogue. There needs to be understanding. There needs to be a tenderness and a respect when it comes to this issue. Now I want to bring up something. A huge issue. That I mean, it has huge catastrophic, catastrophic damage to marriage. And we haven't, I'm telling you, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg yet. All right? It's pornography. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the, merit, outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Then Paul talks about how immorality is a sin against Christ. He says, it's like bringing a prostitute, a harlot, into our relationship with Christ. Immorality, the Greek word for immorality, is the word pornea. It's the root where we get the word pornography from. And there are three sins going on here, three things, three sins going on here in the the context of pornography. First, you sin against yourself. 
You sin against Christ and you sin against your spouse. Now, I hear this sometimes. Well, listen, when I look at that, nobody's getting hurt here. I mean, at least I'm not committing adultery. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus' words, he's speaking. He says, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. According to Jesus, any time that you look at somebody outside of your marriage with lustful intent, you're committing adultery. God's original plan for your marriage was complete unity, complete purity in every area of your lives. Immorality destroys purity. Purity creates unhindered intimacy. Okay? Number four, purity. Genesis 2.25, here's what it says. And the woman and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, Adam and Eve were created in a perfect environment And the Bible says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. In other words, there was a oneness. There was a purity. There was a a trust. There was a wholeness within this first marriage. The word naked simply means exposed. There was a physical exposure, a nakedness. But there was also an emotional and spiritual nakedness, nakedness that Adam and Eve had between one another. They were completely exposed in every way without shame. All right. There was an unlimited level of unhindered intimacy between this couple that affected every part of their being, every part of their marriage. And that was God's plan for their marriage. Unhindered intimacy in every area, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. All right. There was, and it, 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 when that was going on, there was no fear between, with them. There, there was no holding back. There was complete trust. It was a pure environment. And then something happens. You know the story. We get into we get into to chapter three, and what's going on here? They're both wearing, they're both wearing underwear made of fig leaves. And what's going on now? They're covered up and they're ashamed. You say, what happened? Sin happened. Those fig leaves were a symbol that the unhindered intimacy that God had created for marriage it was now gone. And sin brought separation from each other and from God. It brought that into their marriage. Their priorities were messed up. It brought an unhealthy sense of independence into their marriage. It was a possessiveness. This is mine. All right? So we talked about last week, there was a role reversal that took place concerning leadership. Eve took charge, and Adam went went passive, and then he blamed Eve for their sin, and all of a sudden, the protection was gone. And sin also brought fear into their marriage. They feared God, and they feared each other, and now they're ashamed. And the trust was gone, and, and they couldn't be open and authentic with each other. Why? You, you see it. They covered themselves. The un, un, unhindered intimacy was gone. And here's what happens in, in a marriage. When we, walk, when we walk into marriage, what are we what we're doing? We, we dream of this picture, all right, of what could be. And inside of us, we desire what God's original plan was for marriage and, and what, it, what God had created it to be. We, we were created for this kind of marriage. That's God's plan. But we drag sin into marriage. We, de- we drag the baggage that, we, that we've gathered from our parents into the marriage. We drag past relationships and, and past sexual encounters into our marriage. And all of that, when it's not dealt with and when it's not worked through and brought to the cross for forgiveness, it just begins to pick away at our marriage. And over time, guess what happens? Fig leaves begin to build up. Layer after layer of fig leaves. And we shut down emotionally and we go through the motion sexually and we put on 
a facade spiritually and we pretend that everything's okay, but it's not. Listen, God has laid out foundational principles for a healthy marriage. It's never going to be, be perfect because of sin. You just need to know that. But it, it's supposed to just keep getting better. God's desire for you is to have the kind of marriage he created originally in the garden where the priorities were right, where there was protection, there was, there was possession, a healthy understanding of it. There was purity. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I want you to know this morning, it's possible. Think about what sin did to God's design for marriage. It brought separation. It brought independence from God. Fear, guilt, shame. It was all brought into the picture. It was all brought in not only between us and God, but between us and our, and our wives and our spouse. It was all dealt with on the cross. Everything that happened in the garden, everything that I just mentioned, it was all dealt with on the cross. Your past mistakes, your present failures, your, your future sins, all have been dealt with on the cross. Because of Jesus, there is nothing that you have done that God cannot undo. Because of Jesus, there is not a marriage in this room right now that is beyond hope. Listen, our words, our actions and our words, but our words, our words have tremendous, amazing power. They can either build up or they can tear down. And the most powerful words that you can say to God are, God, I am sorry, will you forgive me? I want you to know Jesus has already done it. He's already made the way. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says God promises to forgive us every time. When we confess our sins, he's faithful. The most powerful words you can say in your marriage are this. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm sorry, will you forgive me? This past week, um, Amy and I spent two 90-minute sessions with a, with a counselor. It's a guy out in South Carolina that we, we brought in and he counsels pastors and their wives. And um, I want to tell you why we did that. Because neither of us are satisfied with good. I, I think we have a great marriage. Neither one of us are satisfied with, with just that. All right? I'm never satisfied, and I hope you never be, will be either, with th this is as good as it's going to get. And some of you think that right now. This is as good as it's going to get. Can I tell you something? God has more. God has more, and, you want, and he wants you to have that. We want that as a couple. That's why we went through this. It was draining. If my voice sounds tired, it's because it's been an emotional week. Now, I'm just going to tell you that, that we have no major issues that you're going to find out about later. I mean, it's just not that kind of thing. But just a few fig leaves that have built up over some time that needed to be dealt with. And, and we do that from time to time, just some tune-ups. And there were several moments throughout these two days, these 90-minute sessions, where the words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, was said. Now, I've got to confess to you, mostly they were said by me. <laughs> I know some of you are in here sitting here thinking, you, you have no idea what I'm dealing with. You have no idea what, what I'm dealing with. Listen, I want to ask you a question. Are your issues greater than the work that took place on the cross? Are your issues that you're dealing with greater than the work that took place on the cross? I'm going to tell you, they're not. They're just not. So I don't care what you're dealing with. It's not beyond God's grasp and his reach to be able to come in, to heal, to forgive, to provide forgiveness, and for to, to put you on right footing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. 
It may take tough work, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Someone sent me a text this past week, and they said, you know, my wife's wanting a divorce, and I don't know what to do, and I can't afford counseling. And I just said, shot him a text back, and I said, divorce is more expensive. That's true. God wants you to have a great marriage. That's his desire for you. Some of you are sitting here thinking, as good as it's going to get. Mm-mm, don't say it. It can get better. God's original plan is it would get better and better and better and better and better and better. I'm hoping when Amy and I are 70, 80, if we're you know, still alive, that we'll just keep looking at each other going, it's going to get better. Let's just keep, let's keep digging in. Let's keep digging in. That's my prayer for you. Bow your heads, please. Lord, the enemy would have us to believe that it can't be fixed, that it's beyond hope, that there's a lost cause, that forgiveness can't apply here. Jesus' blood shed on the cross says it can. That forgiveness is there. A new start is available. And Lord, some of, some of us in this room tonight, between first and foremost you, and then between our spouse, Lord, we need to repent. We need to say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And we need to bring Jesus into the mix and let him be the center. Regardless of, of the emotional, draining, toll, I mean, the, the price we have to pay to, to, to get there, Lord, it's worth it. We know it's worth it, Lord, because you designed it. And you gave it to us as a gift. As a gift to us. And I pray, Lord, that we'll go there. We'll go there. And for some of these couples before me this morning, these words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, need to be said. And Lord, they may have to bring a third party in to help them. But I pray, Father, that that first and foremost, that they will choose to bring you in and to let you be the center. And there's some men and women here that that this morning, maybe the first decision they have to make is to put you to be their Lord and Savior, to put their faith and trust in you. And I pray that they'll deal with that right now. There's not a marriage in here that's beyond hope because of what Jesus has done for us. There's not a person in here that's beyond hope because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And may we start there. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.